Welcome to the Humanity Matters Podcast, where we discuss philosophy, faith, leadership, nonprofits, and a host of social issues. We want to add value and understanding the dignity and freedom of human beings. For more information, visit the website philipfletcher.org. And now, the Humanity Matters Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Dr. Philip Fletcher. And over the next few uh, weeks, we are going to be hearing from Frederick Douglass. Now, uh, Frederick Douglass was a profound man in the 19th century. He was a former slave and became one of the most photographed uh, men in the world at his time. He was also a strong abolitionist, uh, very influential, advocating even to Abraham Lincoln himself. And so I would hope over these next few weeks that you would learn and be blessed by my brother and yours, Frederick Douglass. The following speech given by Frederick Douglass was delivered at the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society in Boston, April 1865. Douglas delivered the following speech on the subject, the equality of all men before the law. The speech is entitled, What the Black Man Wants. I came here as I come always to the meetings in New England, as a listener and not as a speaker, And one of the reasons why I have not been more frequently to the meetings of this society has been because of the disposition on the part of some of my friends to call me up out upon the platform, even when they knew that there was some difference of opinion and of feeling between those who rightfully belong to this platform and myself. And for fear of being misconstrued, As desiring to interrupt or disturb the proceedings of this meeting, I have usually kept away and have thus been deprived of that educating influence, which I am always free to confess is of the highest order descending from this platform. I have felt since I have lived out west that in going there, I parted from a great deal that was valuable and I feel Every time I come to these meetings that I have lost a great deal by making my home west of Boston, west of Massachusetts, for if anywhere in the country there is to be found the highest sense of justice or the truest demands for my race, I look for it in the east. I look for it here. The ablest discussions of the whole question of our rights occur here. And to be deprived of the privilege of listening to those discussions is a great deprivation. I do not know from what has been said that there is any difference of opinion as to the duty of abolitionists at the present moment. How can we get up any difference at this point or any point where we are so united, so agreed? I want especially, however, With that word of Mr. Phillips, which is the criticism of General Banks and General Banks policy. 
I hold that policy is our chief danger at the present moment, that it practically enslaves the Negro and makes the proclamation of 1863 a mockery and a delusion. What is freedom? It is the right to choose one's own employment. Certainly it means that if it means anything. And when any individual or combination of individuals undertakes to decide for any man when he shall work, where he shall work, at what he shall work, and for what he shall work, he or they practically reduce him to slavery. He is a slave. That I understand General Banks to do, to determine for the so-called freedmen when and where and at what and for how much he shall work, when he shall be punished and by whom punished. It is absolute slavery. It defeats the beneficent intention of the government if it has beneficent intentions in regards to the freedom of our people. I have had but one idea for the last three years to present to the American people and the phraseology in which I clothe it is the old abolition phraseology. I am for the immediate, unconditional and universal enfranchisement of the black man in every state in the union. Without this, his liberty is a mockery. Without this, you might as well almost retain the old name of slavery for his condition. For in fact, if he is not the slave of the individual master, he is the slave of society and holds his liberty as a privilege, not as a right. He is at the mercy of the mob and has no means of protecting himself. It may be objected, however, that this pressing of the Negro's right to suffrage is premature. Let us have slavery abolished, it may be said. Let us have labor organized, and then in the natural course of events, the right of suffrage will be extended to the Negro. I do not agree with this. The constitution of the human mind is such that if at once disregards the conviction forced upon it by a revelation of truth, it requires the exercise of a higher power to produce the same conviction afterwards. The American people are now in tears. The Shenandoah has run with blood, the blessed blood of the North. All around Richmond, the blood of New England and of the North has been shed of your sons, your brothers and your fathers. We all feel in the existence of this rebellion that judgments terrible, widespread, far-reaching, overwhelming, are abroad in the land. And we feel, in the view of these judgments just now, a disposition to learn righteousness. This is the hour. Our streets are in mourning. Tears are falling at every fireside. And under the chastisement of this rebellion, we have almost come up to the point of conceding this great, this all important right of suffrage. I fear that if we fail to do it now, if abolitionists fail to pre present it now, we may not see for centuries to come 
the same disposition that exists at this moment. Hence, I say now is the time to press this right. It may be asked, why do you want it? Some men have gotten along very well without it. Women have not this right. Shall we justify one wrong by another? This is the sufficient answer. Shall we at this moment justify the deprivation of the Negro of the right to vote because someone else is deprived of that privilege? I hold that women as well as men have the right to vote. And my heart and my voice go with the movement to extend suffrage to women. But that question rests upon another basis, that which our right rests. We may ask, I say, why we want it. I will tell you why we want it. We want it because it is our right, first of all. No class of men can, without insulting their own nature, be content with any deprivation of their rights. We want it again as a means for educating our race. Men are so constituted that they derive their conviction of their own possibilities largely by the estimate formed of them by others. If nothing is expected of a people, that people will find it difficult to contradict that expectation. By depriving us of suffrage, you affirm our incapacity to form an intelligent judgment respecting public men and public measures. You declare before the world that we are unfit to exercise the elective franchise. And by this means, leads us to undervalue ourselves, to put a low estimate upon ourselves, and to feel that we have no possibilities like other men. Again, I want the elective franchise for one as a colored man, because ours is a peculiar government based upon a peculiar idea, and that idea is universal suffrage. If we were in a monarchical government, or an autocratic or an aristocratic government where the few bore rule and the many were subject, there would be no special stigma resting upon me because I did not exercise the elective franchise. It would do me no great violence. Mingling with the mass, I should partake of the strength of the mass. I should be supported by the mass, and I should have the same incentives to endeavor with the mass of my fellow men. It would be no particular burden, no particular deprivation, but here where universal suffrage is the rule, where that is the fundamental idea of the government, to rule us out is to make us an exception, to brand us with the stigma of inferiority and to invite to our heads the missiles of those about us. Therefore, I want the franchise for the black man. There are, however, other reasons not derived from any consideration merely of our rights, but arising out of the conditions of the South and of the country Considerations which have already been referred to by Mr. Phillips. Considerations which must arrest the attention of the statesman. I believe that when the tall heads of this rebellion shall have been swept down, as they will be swept down, 
when the Davises and the Toomses and the Stevenses and others who are leading this rebellion shall have been blotted out, there will be in this rank undergrowth of treason to which reference has been made growing up there and interfering with and thwarting the quiet operation of the federal government in those states. You will see those traitors handing down from sire to son the same malignant spirit which they have manifested and which they are now exhibiting with malicious hearts, broad blades and bloody hands in the field against our sons and brothers. That spirit will still remain. And whoever sees the federal government extended over those southern states will see that government in a strange land. And not only in a strange land, but in an enemy's land. A postmaster of the United States in the South will find himself surrounded by a hostile spirit. A collector in the southern port will find himself surrounded by a hostile spirit. A United States marshal or United States judge will be surrounded there by a hostile element. That enmity will not die out in a year, will not die out in an age. The federal government will be looked upon in those states precisely as the governments of Austria and France are looked upon in Italy at the present moment. They will endeavor to circumvent. They will endeavor to destroy the peaceful operation of this government. Now, where will you find the strength to counterbalance this spirit? If you do not find it in the Negroes of the South, they are your friends and have always been your friends. They were your friends even when the government did not regard them as such. They comprehended the genius of this war before you did. It is a significant fact. It is a marvelous fact. It seems almost to imply a direct interposition of providence that this war, which began in the interest of slavery on both sides, bids fair to end in the interest of liberty on both sides. It was begun, I say, in the interest of slavery on both sides. The South was fighting to take slavery out of the Union and the North was fighting to keep it in the Union. The South fighting to get it beyond the limits of the United States Constitution and the North fighting to retain it within those limits. The South fighting for new guarantees and the North fighting for the old guarantees, both despising the Negro, both insulting the Negro, yet the Negro, apparently endowed with wisdom from on high, saw more clearly the end from the beginning than we did. When Seward said the status of no man in the country would be changed by the war, the Negro did not believe him. When our generals sent the underlings in shoulder straps to hunt the flying Negro back from our lines into the jaws of slavery from which he had escaped, the Negroes thought that a mistake had been made and that the intentions of the government had not been rightly understood by our officers and shoulder straps. And they continued to come into our lines, threading their way through the bogs and the fens over briars and thorns, fording streams, swimming rivers, bringing us tidings as to the safe path to march and pointing out the dangers that threatened us. They 
are our only friends in the South, and we should be true to them in this their trial hour, and so to it that they have the elective franchise. I know that we are inferior to you in some things, virtually inferior. We walk about you like dwarves among giants. Our heads are scarcely seen above the great sea of humanity. The Germans are superior to us. The Irish are superior to us. The Yankees are superior to us. They can do what we cannot. That is what we have not hitherto been allowed to do. But while I make this admission, I utterly deny that we are originally or naturally or practically or in any way or in any important sense inferior to anybody on this globe. This charge of inferiority is an old dodge. It has been made available for oppression on many occasions. It is only about six centuries since the blue-eyed and fair-haired Anglo-Saxons were considered inferior by the haughty Normans who once trampled upon them. If you read the history of the Norman conquest, you will find that this proud Anglo-Saxon was once looked upon as of a coarser clay than his Norman master and might be found in the highways and byways of old England, laboring with a brass collar on his neck and the name of his master marked upon it. You were down then. You are up now. And I'm glad you are up. And I want you to be glad to help us up also. The story of our inferiority is an old dodge, as I have said. For wherever men oppress their fellows, wherever they enslave them, they will endeavor to find the needed apology for such enslavement and oppression in the character of the people oppressed and enslaved. When we wanted a few years ago a slice of Mexico, it was hinted that the Mexicans were an inferior race, that the old Castilian blood had become so weak that it was scarcely run downhill and that Mexico needed the long, strong and beneficent arm of the Anglo-Saxon care extended over it. We said that it was necessary to its salvation and a part of the manifest destiny of this republic to extend our arm over that dilapidated government. So, too, when Russia wanted to take possession of a part of the Ottoman Empire, the Turks were an inferior race. So, too, when England wants to set the heel of her power more firmly in the quivering heart of old Ireland, the Celts are an inferior race. So, too, the Negro, when he is too be robbed of any right which is justly his, is an inferior man. It is said that we are ignorant, I admit it. But if we know enough to be hung, we know enough to vote. If the Negro knows enough to pay taxes to support the government, he knows enough to vote. Taxation and representation should go together. If he knows enough to shoulder a musket 
and fight for the flag, fight for the government. He knows enough to vote. If he knows as much when he is sober as an Irishman knows when drunk, he knows enough to vote on good American principles. But I was saying that you needed a counterpoise in the persons of the slaves to the enmity that would exist at the South after the rebellion is put down. I hold that the American people are bound, not only in self-defense, to extend this right to the freemen of the South, but they are bound by their love of country and by all their regard for the future safety of those Southern states to do this, to do it as a measure essential to the preservation of peace there. But I will not dwell upon this. I put it to the American sense of honor. The honor of a nation is an important thing. It is said in the scriptures, what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? It may be said also, what does it profit a nation if he gain the whole world but lose its honor? I hold that the American government has taken upon itself a solemn obligation of honor to see that this war, let it be long or short, let it cost much or let it cost little, that this war shall cease until every freed man at the South has the right to vote. It has bound itself to it. What have you asked the black men of the South, the black men of the whole country to do? Why you have asked them to incur the enmity of their masters in order to befriend you and to befriend this government. You have asked us to call down not only upon ourselves, but upon our children's children, the deadly hate of the entire Southern people. You have called upon us to turn our backs upon our masters, to abandon their cause and espouse yours, to turn against the South in favor of the North, to shoot down the Confederacy and uphold the flag, the American flag. You have called upon us to expose ourselves to all the subtle machinations of their malignity for all time. And now, what do you propose to do when you come to make peace? To reward your enemies and trample and dust your friends? Do you intend to sacrifice the very men who have come to the rescue of your banner in the South and incur the lasting displeasure of their masters thereby? Do you intend to sacrifice them and reward your enemies? Do you mean to give your enemies the right to vote and take it away from your friends? Is that wise policy? Is that honorable? Could American honor withstand such a blow? I do not believe you'll do it. I think you will see to it that we have the right to vote. There is something to mean in looking upon the Negro when you are in trouble as a citizen and when you are free from trouble as an alien. When this nation was in trouble in its early struggles, it looked upon the Negro as a citizen. In 1776, he was a citizen. At the time of the formation of the Constitution, the Negro had the right to vote in 11 states out of the old 13. In your trouble, you have made us citizens. 
1812, General Jackson addressed us as citizens, fellow citizens. He wanted us to fight. We were citizens then. And now when you come to a frame, a conscription bill, the Negro is a citizen again. He has been a citizen just three times in the history of this government, and it has always been in time of trouble. In time of trouble, we are citizens. Shall we be citizens in war and aliens in peace? Would that be just? I ask my friends who are apologizing for not insisting upon this right. Where can the black man look in this country? for the assertion of his right, if he may not look to the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. Where under the whole heavens can he look for sympathy in asserting this right if he may not look to this platform? Have you lifted us up to a certain height to see that we are men and then are any disposed to leave us there without seeing that we are put in possession of all our rights? We look naturally to this platform for the assertion of all our rights and for this one especially. I understand the anti-slavery societies of this country to be based on two principles. First, the freedom of the blacks of this country and second, the elevation of them. Let me not be misunderstood here. I am not asking for sympathy at the hands of the abolitionists sympathy at the hands of any. I think the American people are disposed often to be generous rather than just. I look over this country at the present time and I see the educational societies, the sanitary commissions, freemen's associations and the like, all very good. But in regard to the colored people, there is always more that is benevolent, I perceive, than just manifested toward us. What I ask for the Negro is not benevolence, not pity, not sympathy, but simply justice. Their American people have always been anxious to know what they shall do with us. General Banks was distressed with solicitude as to what he should do with the Negro. Everybody has asked the question and they learn to ask it early of the abolitionists. What shall we do with the Negro? I have had but one answer from the beginning. Do nothing with us. Your doing with us has already played the mischief with us. Do nothing with us. If the apples will not remain on the tree of their own strength, if they are worm eaten at the core If they are early ripe and disposed to fall, let them fall. I am not for tying or fastening them on the tree in any way except by nature's plan. And if they will not stay there, let them fall. And if the Negro cannot stand on his own legs, let him fall also. All I ask is give him a chance to stand on his own legs. Let him alone. If you see him on his way to school, Let him alone. Do not disturb him. If you see him going to the dinner table at a hotel, let him go. If you see him going to the ballot box, let him alone. Don't disturb him. If you see him going into a workshop, just let him alone. 
Your interference is doing him a positive injury. General Banks' preparation of a piece with this attempt to prop up the Negro. Let him fall if he cannot stand alone. If the Negro cannot live by the line of eternal justice, so beautifully pictured to you in the illustration used by Mr. Phillips, the fault will not be yours. It will be his who made the Negro and established that line for his government. Let him live or die by that. If you will only untie his hands and give him a chance, I think he will live. He will work as readily for himself as the white man. A great many delusions have been swept away by this war. One was that the Negro would not work. He has proved his ability to work. Another was that the Negro would not fight, that he possessed only the most sheepish attributes of humanity, was a perfect lamb or an Uncle Tom, disposed to take off his coat whenever required, fold his hands and be whipped by anybody who wanted to whip him. But the war has proved that there is a great deal of human nature in the Negro and that he will fight. As Mr. Quincy, our president said in earlier days than these, when there is reasonable probability of whipping anybody. Thank you for listening to the Humanity Matters podcast. For more information, visit the website philipfletcher.org or send us an email at humanitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. And remember, as always, if we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible. So be love, be kind, and be generous.